0: I want you to open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we are. How's your Bible reading? How's your devotional life going? I want you to really answer this in your heart. I feel prompted to ask you and challenge you, how's your devotional time? If all you're receiving is what I'm feeding you on a Sunday and possibly on a Wednesday, you will starve to death. You will be so spiritually malnourished that you will die, probably, spiritually speaking. You see, this is... This is Our sustenance, the word of God. You want to know how to live? (laughs) It's very clear. We talked about God's will on Wednesday night. God has a plan for our lives. God has a great, amazing game plan for our lives. I I thought my day would unfold a certain way on Thursday of this last week. It didn't go anything like I had planned and what I thought would unfold because things happen, don't they? But at the end of the day, I I really smiled and I thought, God, you're so good. You didn't show me everything that was going to happen today, but you guided me and you led me all along the way. Be sure that your devotional time is solid, it's strong, and you will grow in Christ Nehemiah chapter 5, look at verse 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 with me today. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain." and everyone said amen to the reading of God's Word and the receiving of the help that comes from God's Word. (laughs) We're just going to continue in a study in Nehemiah that I've entitled, Let Us Rise Up and Build. Something something I've noticed as we've been studying Nehemiah, Nehemiah faced challenges in every chapter so far. In chapter 1, he was faced with a personal challenge. When he heard about the plight of Jerusalem and the plight of God's people, he was challenged by the Spirit of God. He sat down and wept and began to pray. That's a good place to start. If you don't know what to do, just start by prayer. That's what Nehemiah did. He laid a foundation of prayer. He sought the Lord. This goes hand in hand with my challenge to you about your devotional time. How's your prayer life? Well, you're gonna talk to a lot of people in 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 a day's time, any given day, you're going to communicate with a lot of people. Be sure that you communicate with God. And remember, prayer isn't just you talking to God, prayer is you talking to God and you listening to what God has to say back to you. Amen? That's prayer. Just simple communication with God. How's your prayer life? Are you talking to God every day? Are you listening to God every day? This is the foundation that we must lay in order to build the life that God has for us. Chapter 1, personal challenge. Chapter 2, Nehemiah his challenge there was a bit political. When he asked the king, uh, actually when the king asked him, what's going on? I see that you're downcast and you you obviously aren't sick. Nehemiah began to unfold the plan to the king and when the king asked what he needed, Nehemiah was ready with the plan. In chapter three, Nehemiah had had an administrative challenge. He had to Assemble, rally, and motivate 44 different groups of people around one cause, not a small challenge. He positioned the right workers in the right places for the right reasons. Chapter 4, he dealt with the challenge of discouragement. We looked closely at this last week. The workers were afraid of the enemies and convinced that they weren't going to get the job done. They wouldn't complete the work on the wall. But Nehemiah re-rallied the troops, so to speak. They came together under pressure and discouragement was defeated. How many are thankful today that God can still defeat discouragement in our lives? Amen. So here we are at chapter 5 of Nehemiah and we see Nehemiah facing yet another challenge. There's dissension In the camp, Nehemiah 5 deals with strife between God's people as they work on the wall. I've entitled this message today, The Struggle Inside the Wall. Remember this, just a little recap of last week, rubbish. Brings frustration. Frustration leads to discouragement. Discouragement is deadly. Discouragement that is not addressed and defeated will lead to strife and dissension in the camp, within the walls. Can you imagine? God's people actually bickering among one another? Can't hardly imagine that today, can we? Can you imagine there being discord inside of the walls of a church where people are supposed to come together to celebrate God and to build his kingdom? You can't hardly imagine it, can you? It it surely only happened in Nehemiah's day. It definitely wouldn't happen today, would it? And certainly not at this holy place called La Palma Christian Center. Come on now. Can we get real with one another for a little bit? I thank God for the spirit of harmony and unity that pervades here at La Palma Christian Center. We should should just pause and thank God for that church because it hasn't always been that way. But it is now. That's because we recognize when discord comes and we don't allow it to stay. And I say we. That means every one of us, when we sense the enemy trying to come in and create discord and dissension and division, we must all say we won't have it. We won't allow it. You've got to go to another church to pull that kind of nonsense because we have fought too hard to be united. We have fought too hard to be together and to work side by side building the kingdom of God. Oh, come on, somebody. That was worth giving God praise right there. Hallelujah. If we're not, if we're not careful, if we're not aware, if we're not on guard, it will come right back into this camp and there will be dissension within the walls. There will be struggle and strife in the walls. It happens all too often. Greg Surratt pastors Seacoast Church in South Carolina, his brother pastor Seacoast just up the road, Doyle Surratt. He recently told a story about his grandfather who was the pastor of a small church in a farming community in rural Oklahoma a long, long time ago. Apparently, half the church got upset with him and decided to split off from the church. The problem was they didn't leave the church. It was the church split that would not split. Instead of leaving and starting their own church down the street, they decided to stay after realizing how much they'd help pay for half the building and neither side wanted to give the other their investment. The church was built with the traditional center center aisle and a set of pews on either side and every Sunday the group that was mad at the pastor would sit on the one side and the group that liked him would sit on the other side. When it came time for sharing testimonies, each side would try to outdo the other and shout louder and tell better stories than the other. If one spoke in tongues, the other would try to speak better and and longer in tongues. Neither side would leave the church for the sake of some peace and quiet, and finally, the pastor left. It happens all too often. There were two churches with the same name. I read this recently. They were about a mile from each other, and as the history unfolded of these two churches, it was told that they split about 40 years earlier over fried chicken. They were having a picnic on the ground, and two ladies who didn't really like each other, they both brought Fried chicken that particular day. The preacher, not knowing about this, he happened to stop at one end of the table. He grabbed a piece of fried chicken and commented, This is the best fried chicken I've ever eaten. Which, of course, was overheard by the other lady and her her group. And so that group packed up their things. And within a few, few weeks, they were gone. And a good many that were with them were gone. And the church split over fried chicken. I read of another church that split over a piano bench and the positioning of of furniture on a stage. I'm not making this up. You can't make this up. Hollywood couldn't script this kind of stuff. I recently read this. When a group of thoroughbred horses face an enemy attack, they stand in a circle facing each other with their back legs out. And with their back legs, they will kick out at the foe. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? Donkeys, on the other hand, do just the opposite. They make a circle and face the threat while using their hind legs to end up kicking each other. Hmm. Don't live like a donkey. (laughs) God's called us to work together. Building the wall, as it were. It was the wall in Nehemiah's day. It's just the work of the kingdom today, isn't it? Building the church. Building God's reputation. Building the kingdom. It's much easier to conquer and subdue an enemy who attacks us, than it is to forgive and restore a friend who has hurt us. Psalm 55 says in verse 12, If an enemy were insulting me or reproaching me, who attacks us, if an enemy were insulting me, I, would, I could endure it, the psalmist says. If a foe were rising up against me, I could run and hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship in the house of God. Wow. Strife is real. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist. The struggle sometimes arises inside the wall. Today our text highlights the sources and the solutions of the strife. Let's start by looking at the sources of strife. I want you to jot down just a few notes today that I believe are going to be helpful to you. The sources of the strife. We see the people beginning to complain in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And they're not complaining against Sanballat. Sanballat, remember, is the enemy, Tobiah, the Ashdodites, the Arab people. They were surrounded on the north, the south, the east, and the west. Everywhere they turned, everywhere they looked, there was an enemy ready to fight them. Now it's one thing to complain against the enemy. It's another thing entirely to start to complain against people who are in your family, People in the church, they began to complain against each other. Now let me interject this right here. I think it needs to be said. Not all complaining is bad. Not all complaining is wrong. For instance, when we complain about political injustice, how many believe there's some political injustice going on in the world today? maybe even in our country today, maybe even in our state, and maybe even in the city that you're living in. Do we just sit by quietly and say nothing? Complaining about moral injustice. I believe it grieves the heart of God, and it is one of the greatest sins ever to be committed, the slaughter of unborn babies. Now, you should have really said amen or shook your head or something right there. Abortion is wrong. It is a sin. There are other options. And with God's help, we don't have to resort to something like this. Do we just sit by and say, well, our society has promoted it and accepts it and it's just how it's going to be? Or do we complain about this? Complaining that now let me let me also say this I said complain all complaining is not wrong all complaining is not bad, but complaining that leads to action here's the key, complaining that leads to action, action which leads to change. This is when complaining can be constructive and helpful. The, the key, church, is not to become a complainer. <laughs> if you have a complaint, there should be proper channels for complaining. And if it's for, ultimately, if it's for good, if it's for change, if, if it's for action that will, will bring about change. But be careful not to become a complainer. Complaining about anything, complaining about everything, and not really even caring about the end result of change. That's not honoring to God. That doesn't please God. Always negative, always grumbling, never satisfied. It sounds like God's people in Moses' day. The children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 extra years because of unnecessary complaining. Why were the people complaining in chapter 5? Well, they were hungry for one thing. The people started grumbling. This people started complaining because their stomachs were grumbling. See, the stomach started grumbling, then the mouth started grumbling, Joe. Ha <laughs> ha. They were just hungry. Look, Look again at our text. And there was a great outcry of the people, verse 1 the people and their wives, against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons, our daughters, there's so many of us, we have to go get grain just so we can eat and live. There was a great famine in the, in the land. The population was increasing. Families were growing. takes a lot to feed A family, a lot of mouths to feed, right? We went to the store yesterday. I won't tell you how much we spent. But we got hungry people in our home. I'm one of them. I like to eat. You like to eat. We like to eat. How many are going to eat sometime today? The rest of you fasting. Well, thank God. How many already ate something today? Come on. You're going to eat more than one thing today, more than one time today. We like to eat, and when we go without, it's a powerful, powerful attention getter, hunger. Many had left their jobs, they left their fields, they left their vineyards, they left their livelihood so they could come and work on the wall. And now, we don't even get enough to eat. What's going on, Nehemiah? There's a lot of us, he says, and we're running out of food. How many feel that hunger could be a legitimate complaint? made me think of how many spiritually hungry people there are in our society today. This is why I'm trying to exhort you and encourage you in the reading of God's Word your, your time in prayer with Him, and just regular attendance to church. You may not remember what I preach in a month. You may not remember it in a week. I hope you remember a little bit of it tomorrow, quite honestly. That's why I try to make it very clear for you. I want you to remember. But I guarantee you, in a few months, you're not going to remember what I, what I preach today. No more than you'll remember what you ate yesterday, three months from now. But you need the sustenance that that came from eating yesterday, didn't you? Well, so it is with just attending church, reading the Word of God, spending time in prayer. We are feeding our spiritual man. We would never neglect eating physically, but we neglect eating spiritually far too often. And then wonder why we're sick spiritually. It's because there's a hunger. God has created a hunger on the inside of us that nothing else will satisfy, church. We know that. We're here in the house of God celebrating Him and wanting to learn of Him. You understand that. But think of the people in your life and how they are eating so many things that are unhealthy because they're hungry. I'm talking about spiritually, they are so hungry. There are thousands of false religions around the world. Thousands, why? Because people are hungry. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And if you will eat of me, You won't hunger again. Jesus said, I am the living water, and if you will drink of me, you'll never thirst again. So many hungry people. Hunger was their first source of strife. The hunger actually led to hurting. I wanna wanna talk to you about why the people were complaining. What caused the strife to come inside of the wall? They were hungry, they were hurting. Look at verse number 3. There were some also, some of us, we've mortgaged our lands, they said. We've we've mortgaged our vineyards, our houses, all this, so we might buy grain because of the famine. They were broke. (laughs) They had absolutely nothing, financially speaking. And you know what they say if you want to really hurt somebody? Hit them where it hurts. You've ever heard that? Hit them where it hurts. You know where that hit is? It's in the wallet. It's in the bank account. Hit them where it hurts is all talking about money. How many would like a little bit more of it right now? You just be honest. I'll take everybody else who didn't raise your hand. I'll take your share. I'll take a little bit more. I don't want to, not the love of money. That's a a root of evil. But I would love for God to bless me so abundantly that I'm just giving it out to everybody. Missions and, and just whoever is in need, the poor and the hungry, hallelujah. I want to be a vessel that God can fill so God can spill, amen. We can't take any of it with us, can we? But when you don't have enough, it hurts when you lay all your bills out on the table and you 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 do the 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 random roulette of which one are we going to which one are we going to pay you you shuffle them around you turn them over and shuffle them around you pull this one out well we'll pay this one i guess you think i'm kidding there are people that do this to this day because they struggle financially and it is a hurt desperate trying to do anything they can to eat and just to live and to make a living they mortgage their land they mortgage their vineyards they mortgage their houses just so they could eat when we face financial difficulty it hurts and it can do massive massive damage And you know, people get desperate when they are hurting. There's a phrase that says, Hurt people hurt people. If someone has hurt you, you need to try to get up above the situation and ask why. Because someone who is hurt will probably go on and hurt someone else. I'll just say this, and it's not even in my notes. But if you want to be blessed financially and you want the financial hurt to be lifted and broken even, become a tither. Yep. Learn the principles in God's word of giving because you will literally and seriously never be able to outgive God. He just keeps giving back to us. Good measure. pressed down. Shaken together and running over. You can actually break the back of poverty in your life by making a decision in your mind, by making a decision in your heart that I am going to give to God consistently and faithfully. I'm going to bring a tithe into the storehouse. I'm going to look for opportunities to help less fortunate people and I believe the financial hurt will be lifted and broken in your life hallelujah I need to write that in for second service they were hungry they were hurting they were hopeless look at verses four and five there were also some who said we've even borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and our vineyards now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren our children as their children and indeed we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves some of our daughters have been brought into slavery it's not even in our power to redeem them for other men They have our lands. They have our vineyards. This sounds like a very hopeless situation. They're hungry. They're desperate. And so they they mortgage their land, their vineyards, their houses. But then the king comes and puts out his hand. The government says, you still owe us, by the way. Even if you don't have money to pay it, you still owe it. And so, they had to sell themselves or sell their family members into slavery. That's what happened in Nehemiah's day. It's like living by credit card. Anybody ever got in trouble with credit cards? You don't have to raise your hand. There'll be a lot of hands. I have a feeling lifted. Mine included. Credit cards can, can really be a stranglehold on you. Now, if you learn to live within within the rules of a credit card, it's actually actually awesome, very wonderful. Build your credit history and and your, your, your credit score. But if you can't live within that, shred them today. Bring them to me and I'll get my scissors out. I love you enough to shred up your credit cards. Because once you live under that, you, you can't even get ahead. All you're paying is the interest. And it's like, it's, like the, it's like the toilet. When you flush the toilet and it just swirls down and you flushes it all away. That's credit card living. Only in Nehemiah's day, it, it wasn't even like that. Then they just go, well, we'll just go bankrupt and just kind of wipe the slate clean. That's, that's, a, that's a problem for our society. Uh, in America, we just, we just say, well, we'll just go bankrupt. Now, that is not to demean anyone who's actually had to take these steps. But I think there is a mentality that's very dangerous that is prevalent across our society. Nehemiah in his day, it resulted in slavery. Once the property had been mortgaged for all it's worth, the only other possibility was for a person to sell themselves, sell your daughter. Could you imagine selling your daughter off to slavery? Boggles my mind. I've got two amazing daughters. Here they were up here today leading worship. I mean, as a father, I was just, my button's about to pop. I'm so thankful and so godly proud uh, that my daughters are, first of all, in the house of God, but secondly, that they're being used by God. I love it. It's awesome. I can't imagine selling my daughters into slavery because of financial hurt. That's what happened. A vicious cycle would continue to turn and roll. If we sell our land because we're broke, we can't earn money. There's no vineyards to work. There's no fields to work and harvest. They've sold all of that. If we have no land and no money, then we have to sell our children into slavery in order just to pay the king's taxes. And if our children are slaves and working for someone else, we'll never be able to harvest their help to maybe somehow get to a place of earning. All of our workforce, some of our workforce is gone. We'll never be able to earn enough money to get our land back. Thus, we will never be able to get our children back and this vicious cycle just keeps turning. No way to redeem them back. That's what the scripture says. To me, this sounds hopeless. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt hopeless? There's no hope. That's a scary place. That's a dangerous place. And I've had many In my career as a minister, I've had many people come and say those words to me. I don't think there's any hope. I don't think there's any hope for my marriage. I don't think there's any hope for my my financial situation. Just completely hopeless. And I try to help them find one ray of hope. Because it only takes one ray of hope with God. To actually expose the, the lie of the enemy. Church, hear me today, there's always hope, no matter how dark it might seem, and no matter what your head is telling you, with God, there's always hope. How many need a little bit of hope right now? It might not feel hopeless, but you'd sure like a little bit more hope, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Noemi, I'm telling you right now, there's hope for your son. There's hope for your family. There's hope for your home. You just keep standing. You keep believing. You keep having the faith, sis. We thank you, God, that you are on the move. We thank you, God, that you are moving in Noemi's family, in her son. And I pray that today you might just surround her heart with your peace. Let her not be overwhelmed. Let her not be anxious. Give her hope and everybody else who said I could use a little bit more hope today. Christ is enough for me, and He is my anchor, and He is my hope. There's always hope, church. Hope in Him. And when I say hope, we're not crossing our fingers and blowing out birthday candles. It's not, we're not making wishes on stars. We have a confidence that God is going to work this out. It is our hope. Hunger, hurt, hopelessness. These are the sources of the strife. But thanks be to God, he has a solution for the strife. Let's look now at the solutions to the strife. Nehemiah was the man God had called to lead this work, and so God gave Nehemiah a solution for the strife that was arising. It started with a rebuke. The solution for the strife came, first of all, by way of rebuke. Can you imagine? Look at 6 and 7 of chapter 5. Nehemiah says, I became very angry when I heard the people's outcry and the words that they were speaking. And verse number 7, look closely at this. It says, after serious thought. After serious thought, I rebuked the leadership, the nobles, the rulers. And I said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brethren. So I called a great assembly against them. The solution started with a rebuke. Nehemiah was angry. The scripture is very clear. He was angry. You know it's okay to be angry sometimes. There's something about being angry for the right reasons. I said something earlier about complaining about the right things. God let us become angry for the right reasons. There was a righteous anger. Moses had this righteous anger. Moses became angry when he came down from the mountain and saw the people trying to take matters into their own hands, they broke off all the jewelry of their, in their ears and their, their bracelets and, and they made an image of gold, a calf of gold, and worshiped that instead of God. Moses was angry, and it was right for him to be angry, wasn't it? Broke the tablets, had to get another set. Ah. Jesus was angry. When he went into the temple and saw them conducting matters in an inappropriate way. And so Jesus overturns the table. This was a righteous anger. It was appropriate anger. He didn't just fly off the handle. Nehemiah didn't just fly off the handle. handle. He took time to think about the situation. I, I, I want you to understand this. Verse number 7 says after serious thought. Sometimes we just fly off the handle, fly off the handle. I can't say this. We speak before thinking way too often. How about we ponder the situation? Sometimes a rebuke is in order, especially for a leader. It's one of the tough parts of the job of being a leader and being a pastor. When rebuke is called for, many pastors will sidestep it or just avoid it altogether. But I believe that when it's appropriate, it needs to be done. But it needs to be done in the right way and at the right time. Nehemiah Pondered this after serious thought. Look at verse number 7 again. After serious thought, after he had pondered this and thought about this for a while, then he rebuked the leadership. He rebuked the nobles. He rebuked the leaders. God give us a righteous anger. Anger that leads to action. Action that leads to change. Started with a rebuke. It rolled right into Reasoning. Verse number 8, Nehemiah begins to reason with them. He says to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, He's continuing to reason with them. What what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations of our enemies? Verse number 10, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please, he says, I'm trying to reason with you. Let us stop this usury. After the rebuke comes a loving reasoning and an explanation of the situation. Nehemiah tries to help them see the error of their ways. It's a beautiful way of bringing resolution to a strife-filled situation. Rebuke and then reasoning. Surely you can see this, Nehemiah is saying to them. Surely you can understand that this is not appropriate. How much more effective would we be if we would try to reason with people the error of their way? It leads to restoration. I'm talking to you about solutions to strife. The rebuke led to reasoning. The reasoning led to Restoration, because it says that they were silenced. They absolutely had nothing to say. In other words, they were saying, you're right. Verse 11, restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. I love this. Now, because God was in the rebuke, Now because God was in the reasoning that Nehemiah was speaking, the restoration happened. The plan for restoration was also received. There was a requirement that followed the restoration. Verse number 12, So they said, We will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Nehemiah says, Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out of the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. "Amen." All the assembly... Praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. There was a requirement that the people must adhere to. They had to make an oath, a binding promise. They promised to restore or they had to deal with the wrath of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to deal with the wrath of God. I would rather be obedient to what God is asking me to do, what God is requiring of me to do, than to deal with the wrath of God. Amen? And he just shook out his garment. I like that. He was a little dramatic right there, just shaking out the dirt, the dust, whatever it was, and he just says, so may God shake anybody out who doesn't do this. all the assembly said amen in other words they're saying we're with you what the plan that you have we're with you then they praise the lord all the assembly praised the lord it's important that we're praising god together as a people we're saying amen together so be it god Let it be done, God. Amen. We praised together. Then they obeyed. Then it says the people did according to the promise. There are three steps right there that I want you to see in verse number 13. They said amen together, they praised the Lord together, and they obeyed the Lord together. All of this led to a resolve. Nehemiah had a resolve within him. He set the example by living right. He resolved that no matter what, he was going to live right. He was going to make choices that were right. Verse number 14, moreover, he says, "From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land, he got a promotion, by the way, he became the governor for 12 years. By the time, uh, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of, of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. I'm talking to you about Nehemiah setting an example in living right he did not take advantage of the privileges that were offered to him even though he could have he wanted to live among the people if the people are struggling financially I'm going to live right there with them and just because I have a little bit of money I'm going to offer them money I'm going to loan them money that's what the scripture tells us earlier he loaned them money. He gave them food. He gave them grain. He set the example of living right. Church, are you setting a good example for those who are watching? And let me say this, somebody's watching. We have to have a resolve in us, Stacy, No matter if the world lives right or not, we have to set the example of right living. Nehemiah resolved to set this example. Nehemiah resolved to serve people in love. Verse number 15. The former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people. They took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But look at this. Nehemiah says, I did not do so. He set the example of serving people. We had an amazing meeting yesterday. Almost a hundred of our core people came together in this room to hear what God would say about the future of La Palma Christian Center. And it's about loving God and loving people. Serving God and serving people. And 91 of us yesterday resolved, with God's help, we're going to do all that we can to serve the Lord and to serve people, because that's what it's all about. Wasn't that an amazing meeting yesterday, Pastor Moses? How many were at this meeting yesterday? I'm just telling you, the Spirit of God flooded this room, spoke a word to us, and gave us a future, hallelujah. Nehemiah set the example, he did not let the greed of others affect his good judgment of serving people. He led the example, uh, set the example by fearing God. His resolve was, I'm going to fear God. Bring up chapter, uh, verse number 15 for me one more time. But the former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people. They took money from the people. Even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. The fear of the Lord, Psalm 111.10 says, it's the beginning of wisdom. Do you need wisdom in your life? Decisions that you need to make? Start by fearing God. And that's not being afraid of God. That's a reverence and an awe and a respect of God. I fear the Lord. And so I will honor the Lord. I will serve the Lord. I don't want to do anything to disappoint the Lord. And I don't want to, I don't want to enjoy the wrath of the Lord. Enjoy, you know. Fear the Lord with all your heart. It leads to wisdom. He resolved finally just to continue in the work of the Lord. Pastor Moses, I want you to come. Look at verse number 16. Let me close this. Nehemiah says, Indeed, I also continued the work on the wall. We did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered together for the work. There was a resolve in Nehemiah to continue working on the wall. In chapter 5, we see a great challenge arising. People are hungry. People are hurting. Some were absolutely hopeless. But God uses Nehemiah and gives him a plan. He gives Nehemiah a solution For the strife. And because the people hear the the plan of God, the strife stops. The struggle within the wall comes to an end. La Palma Christian Center, may I remind you today we are also called to work. We're called to work for the King, building the kingdom, building the church, let's not let strife come between us. Just as God had a solution for Nehemiah and his people on that day, so God will show us the solution today. How much more effective are we when we work together? So let all the assembly, <laughs> let all the assembly say, "Amen." Are you with me today? I want you to bow your heads. Is there strife in your life? Do you have aught against your brother? Are you struggling in ministry, in your work of the Lord? Perhaps today God is going to show you the solution. If you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I do feel that there is a bit of strife, that I want God to give the solution and the struggle to end. If that's you, lift your hand and put it right back down. Just be honest. God already knows, but he's looking for a response. There's strife in your life, and you want it gone today. If you haven't lifted your hand and need to, please do that. You can lift it and put it right back down. Father, we thank you that you do have a plan, you have a solution for the strife, and the struggle will come to an end. Just as you unfolded your plan to Nehemiah, and the people all said, "Amen." Amen. Let that be so today, God, give us your heart. Give us your mind, give us your solution, give us your plan and let the strife be gone in the name of Jesus. Let the struggle inside the wall come to an end so that we can work side by side, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, building your kingdom. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for coming to the house of the Lord today. We are so glad that you have come. If you are a guest, we have a gift for you. It's in our foyer at the welcome desk. We want to invite you to come. Amen. Please also remember life groups. We have our life groups tonight. Be sure to... um, Show up at your life group, and if you've not joined one yet, there is still time. Amen. Let me ask you to stand. We dismiss you now in the name of the Lord. Go with God, be blessed, and be a blessing. Amen.